There are two types of generals in the American military. There are those who believe they can win in the face of all evidence to the contrary, and there are those who know they can't. Unfortunately for the world, it's the believers who climb to the top of the ladder. Those are the words of the narrator, who's based on the real-life journalist Michael Hastings in the 2017 Netflix movie War Machine, starring Brad Pitt, which is the focus of this episode. And I'm delighted to be joined by none other than Scott Horton, author of Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and host of The Scott Horton Show, and founder and honcho of the... Libertarian Institute, among many other credits on his resume. And in this episode, we're going to be discussing this film and critiquing it and kind of going from there towards the broader issues having to do with American politics and where they intersect with imperialist foreign policy. And those of my listeners who are scholar warrior supporters of the show, who make a monthly contribution of $5 or more via Patreon. We'll have already gotten this episode actually on Veterans Day, but for you folks who are not in that select few, you'll be getting it a few days later. Of course, you can always join that select few. Head on over to patreon.com slash profcj. Speaking of Patreon, real quick, I have a few shout-outs to new supporters. Big thanks to Roland, Brian, and Ava for stepping up to help support the show. Also, before I get to my conversation with Scott, I want to give a quick shout out to a listener named Mike who emailed me not too long ago and uh, recommended the film War Machine. In his email, Mike said that he was a veteran of Afghanistan and that he found the movie to be pretty realistic and accurate in its overall portrayal of the war. So what basically caused me to go and watch this movie was that combined with, I think I had heard Scott himself uh, recommend the movie or at least mention it favorably before as well. So anyway, that inspired this episode. I went and saw the movie and then uh, after, or didn't went and saw it, sounds like I went to the theater. I watched the movie from home and then afterwards I said, oh, I'm going to do a DHP movie review on it. And then I said, huh, I wonder if I could get Scott Horton to come on and help me out with that since he literally wrote the book on the American war in Afghanistan, and he was kind enough to join me. So, without further ado, I present to you our conversation. Okay, so I'm happy to welcome the great Scott Horton, author of Fool's Errand, the book on the Afghanistan War, back to the Dangerous History podcast, because we are going to do a Dangerous History movie review about the recent Netflix movie, War Machine. So happy to have Scott on to lend us his expertise about this film. Scott, thanks for coming back on. Thanks very much for having me. All right. So for those of uh, the listeners who've not yet seen this movie, uh, first off, you might want to before you listen to this, but this is a 2017 Netflix movie starring Brad Pitt as a fictionalized, but not too much fictionalized version of uh, Stanley McChrystal, and is basically based on Michael Hastings' book, The Operators, is what I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, 
Does that that pretty much all sound right? Yep. All right. So not that I made it. I'm just a fan like you. Yeah, yeah, but uh I'm I'm not misunderstanding like that this is basically the McChrystal story, right? Yeah. And and the guy who who directed it or you know wrote the screenplay and directed I think both said that he was basing this on the operators by Michael Hastings and and the fictionalized version of Hastings in the movie is sort of the narrator of right, right. explaining what's going on here. Yeah, you know, one thing I couldn't understand was why did they change most of the names? Were they were they worried about like I don't know, libel or something, do you think? Or Well, you know, they were trying to satirize it. It it kind of made sense to me, right, that you know, the Secretary of State is clearly Hillary Clinton, although I don't think they ever call her by her name, or if they do, it's just, you know, it, but it's very apparent who it's supposed to be, which, by the way, the actress that they got to play Hillary Clinton was just perfect. I thought that was great. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, they, they changed the names just to the principles, right? So you had, it's Anthony Michael Hall. Can you believe that that's Anthony Michael Hall that plays uh, Brad Pitt's right-hand man, yeah. who is basically the Michael Flynn character? Right. right. Yeah, and, it, it's hard to believe like what a, you know, almost like a meathead looking kind of guy he he became. I mean, he was the little the little, you know, wimpy nerdy kid in all those 80s movies. And you know what's funny is I can't remember the, my source now, but I think that McChrystal and Flynn that there was a guy that worked for them who was named Michael Hall. <laughs> and so it occurred to me that that was where they got the idea like, "Hey, we'll get Anthony Michael Hall to play one of the characters," you know? Cuz wow. that was actually the partially the name of one of their guys there must wow. be where that came from yeah that that's awesome and of course he's the guy um the character in the movie who's got like severe anger issues right he's always just screaming at the top of his lungs at everybody right and then i, I think like almost all of the all of the side characters even were at least to some degree based on like real people that were talked about in hastings book mm. but yeah and you know um well, a lot of the scenes come straight out of the book, right, where uh, McChrystal goes out to a uh, uh, firebase way out there, somewhere forward operating base, and some of the enlisted men start contradicting him. They're so fed up and, uh, you know, where it almost gets out of control. And um, he wrote about that in the article, The Runaway General, and really, you know uh, – Hmm. I guess I can't remember my source for this anymore either, but I remember it being written somewhere from a White House source that more than bad-mouthing the president and the vice president, that the real problem in that article that spooked Obama was the insubordination and, you know, somewhat near mutiny on the part of the American soldiers out there doing McChrystal's bidding, who clearly found his rules of engagement to be so restrictive that they felt like they were putting them they were being put in danger that even when they're being fired they can't fire back fired upon they can't fire back which wasn't really true but so obama for political reasons really freaked out about that because that's the le- the legend of lyndon johnson right that the war would have been won if only the democrats in the white house had just let the generals handle it instead of johnson picking all the targets and and our poor guys being forced to fight with one arm tied behind their back so obama that was one of his main reasons for getting rid of McChrystal was he didn't want that around hanging around his neck. So it wasn't just that they had personally insulted him, but it was that he didn't he thought all this the feel good counterinsurgency wasn't going to work anyway 
you might as well go ahead and just unleash force against the bad guys. And so that was what Petraeus did when he came in and succeeded McChrystal. So the the film basically starts off with when I guess in the film his name is McMahon, Brad Brad Pitt's character. When he gets the job, right, he's kind of handed the job of, all right, you're going to come in and clean up uh, the Afghan war. And we get this this interesting kind of humorous um, little vignette into this character, um, McMahon slash McChrystal. And from what I've seen, I mean, it's pretty close to the real McChrystal in a lot of ways, including the uh, running seven miles a day, sleeping four hours a night, only eating one meal per day, all that stuff. Um, at least that's the, at least that's the hype about the real McChrystal, but that's how they portrayed Petraeus as well, that these aren't just generals. These are, you know, super men who operate on just an entirely different physiology than us regular mortals. Yeah. Yeah. They're almost like samurai Zen masters or something like that. And, uh, at least the clips that I was able to look up, on YouTube and whatever. Cause I was, I was going back, you know, I had followed this stuff when it was happening back like eight years ago or whatever, but I went back and was looking up video clips of McChrystal and stuff. And it's funny, Brad Pitt, um, even imitates his run. Like when you see clips of McChrystal jogging, he kind of jogs with his arms down. It, it just looks sort of awkward and weird. And mm-hmm. that's how they have Brad Pitt running around that, that weird kind of like arms down, but flared out a little bit kind of run. Yeah, that's funny. I was wondering where they got that from. <laughs> yeah, but then but then Brad Pitt um speaks with this like way over the top like gravelly voice or whatever that I, I don't think is is actually based on the crystal. I guess it's just based on like a you know, over the top caricature of a gruff military general. Yeah. I mean one thing is and you know, it's a satire, I don't know. If it was me, I would have made the Hastings character the main character and Brad Pitt, it wouldn't have been Brad Pitt. I would have got a bad guy to play the bad guy, McChrystal, instead of, you know, because in a sense in the movie, McChrystal stands for America doing our very best to help the people, but it just doesn't work out, you know, which is really not the truth of the war. You know what I mean? Even the way at the beginning, like, well, we're going to do a review and see what we want. The reason they put McChrystal in there in the first place was so that because the guy who was already there, McKiernan, had already asked for a bunch of troops, and Bush and Obama both had already given him thousands and, you know, 20,000. And so they said, well, we want another 40,000, but we need a new general in there to reset the ask. Hmm. So it wasn't that McKiernan had done anything wrong. They just fired him so they could bring him a crystal so that he could do the review so that he could ask for another 40,000 troops. Hmm. So that was how he got the job in the first place. And, you know, the level of cynicism that Petraeus and McChrystal and the rest of them use, I mean, in the movie, they make it look like, oh, gee, the poor guy is trying to do his best. And so he ends up having to go to the media and do a I mean, and they're you know, I'm not saying they're trying to completely let him off the hook. But in the, if, if you're just a regular consumer of this movie, you might kind of forgive him for he's stuck with this you know, weak loser President Obama who won't engage with him, won't give him the FaceTime, won't let him ask for the number of troops he needs to do the job. And he's just trying to do the best job when really, and I show this in the book (laughs) uh, for sale now, uh, that they knew this wasn't going anywhere. They said, well, we're just trying to add time to the Washington clock. 
We're just trying to come up with a situation where we can say, well, at least it's better than it used to be or et cetera like this. They knew they weren't getting anywhere. They knew that they couldn't they, – they weren't even trying to defeat the Taliban or even drive them out of the country, say, across the border into Pakistan. They were just trying to make some temporary gains in some places for a while. Just, in other words, find an excuse to stay. And they're doing the exact same thing again right now. And, you know, in the Obama surge, and we'll see what's going to happen with this one, but in the Obama surge, tens of thousands of people were killed. And all for nothing. And they knew it was all for nothing. So I don't really see McChrystal like a Brad Pitt character who's just out there doing his damnedest. You know, these guys are criminals. Yeah, when I was watching the movie, and I think we both have just watched it for the second time recently in in, uh, preparation for this conversation, I got the sense that it was sort of sort of ambivalent on like exactly what's going wrong with the war and exactly who's to blame like there's times where it seems like yeah they're trying to trying to portray uh McMahon as you know he's just this boy scout do-gooder but then there's other times where where they they take a little more cynical take on him and i don't know i i, I get what you're saying uh a minute ago when you said that the general public, who's not really looked into this stuff very much, they might watch it and just kind of get the typical right-wing, you know, Vietnam-esque narrative of, well, if only they would have let the troops really do their job, we would have won. But then I think for people who actually know a little bit about the real history of this stuff, that it comes off a little bit different. It's almost like there's a there's an exoteric level to the movie and an esoteric level to the movie where mm-hmm. if you sort of know the history a little bit, the actual history, then the movie can seem more cynical than it might to a person who's just like, you know, average Joe. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, you're going to be honest and, and consider even the way they portrayed in the movie. And certainly this is true in real life, that it was letting the military do what they wanted that was behind the coin doctrine and McChrystal's restrictive rules of engagement. It wasn't Obama as LBJ up there picking targets. It was the local generals were doing this because as they explain in the movie, the basically the mission is to try to separate the men of the neighborhood from their families and say, oh, yeah, no, your husbands and brothers and fathers who are fighting in this insurgency against us, they're your enemy and we love you more than they do. And we're going to be your security force, not them which is stupid and which never works. And uh, it's the same thing that they tried to do in Vietnam. They said, oh, yeah, you know, we never got a chance to do coin in Vietnam. Yeah, they did, too, the counterinsurgency doctrine for years and years and years. All they did was not just fail, but all they did was drive more and more Vietnamese into the insurgency against them. The exact same thing has happened in Afghanistan. So, um, you know, Obama, those... You know, his fear that he would be accused of of uh, nitpicking, he knew he would get the blame for his generals doing that. But it was actually him letting the generals off the leash that put them in the position where they said, "Okay, so here's what we're going to do. Is this absolutely crazy policy? And, you know, they show the Brits and the others in the movie saying, you know, you can't conquer the Helmand province. You can't drive the Taliban out of the Helmand province. You know, it's unfortunate in a way that especially the kind of the way it's portrayed in the movie is, you know, that, well, maybe it would have worked if Hastings hadn't taken him down with that article in Rolling Stone. But, you know, in fact, 
McChrystal himself had admitted that Marge is a bleeding ulcer. We're not accomplishing anything there. And getting Marines and a bunch of Afghans killed for nothing. Trying to conquer this vast province uh, that's, you know, this agricultural land. Everyone agreed at the time that, well, the whole battle, the real battle is in Kandahar province next door and for Kandahar City. And then, but so what happened was after the Rolling Stone article came out and, and McChrystal was fired, Obama did the smart thing for his own politics sake, and he demoted David Petraeus from commander of Central Command to general in charge of the war in Afghanistan. That way, the failure wouldn't be pinned on him for firing the brilliant McChrystal. We would have McChrystal's mentor and boss come in to finish the job. And then that way, no one would be able to say, well, Obama's the one who didn't win it. It would be clearly the McChrystal-Petraeus duo who didn't win it. And then so by the time um, – and now remember the, the real full-scale search. I mean the troops escalation started the beginning of 2009, really the end of 08 and the beginning of 2009. But the final 35,000-something troops weren't sent until December of 2009. Right. The end of Obama's first year in power, they really all like got there on the ground and running in January and February of 2010. McChrystal only lasted a few months till spring, the end of the spring, I guess. And then Petraeus came in after that. And so even by then, Coyne had already failed. The test case was supposed to be Marja. And then they were going to work on the rest of the Helmand province. And once they secured the Helmand province again, winning over the hearts and minds of the people to believe that a bunch of American GIs, uh, you know, Marines and and uh, Army soldiers are a better fit as a security force for them than their own communities <laughs> that where they live. And so by the time Petraeus came in, he didn't even try it in Kandahar. By the time Petraeus came in, the surge was simply escalation and combat forces. All this stuff about hearts and minds and counterinsurgency and all of this, they just said, you know what? What we're going to do is we're going to increase airstrikes, we're going to increase night raids, and we're going to double down on trying to train up an Afghan army. But the coin was canceled. Petraeus himself, the so-called godfather of coin, uh, certainly its uh, you know, primary salesman, uh, preeminent salesman in America – uh, he himself didn't even try it by the time he came to pick up where McChrystal had left off. And of course, in the movie, that's uh, Russell Crowe, right? Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> how the movie ends is here comes Petraeus to, you know, do the same failure. And so here's the thing, too, is we've got to talk about Michael Hastings, you know, the uh, the character that's played by that 70s show in the movie who makes the mistake of hiring the reporter from Rolling Stone. Yeah, yeah, the civilian well, uh, civilian PR consultant, right? Yeah, exactly. And so the kid from that 70s show, he he plays that part well as like being too ignorant to realize what he was doing here. And, you know, the assumption was this guy writes for Rolling Stone, so he's going to be cool. And then even the way it's portrayed to us, or at least he's going to be so shallow that he'll write whatever they want him to write is basically, you know, what they, what they thought they were doing there. But they don't really show in the in the story or talk at all about Hastings or the character of Hastings, I think he's uh, named Cohen in the movie, um, that he had covered the Iraq war for the Washington Post and for Newsweek and for all other things like that. He was a serious war reporter. I had interviewed Hastings for years and I had interviewed him, you know, at the time. And in fact, he took the time off in between um, the worst of Iraq war two and the Afghan surge. He spent covering the campaign 
uh, as Obama was running for president in 2008. And uh, then he went, you know, back to Afghanistan. So they make it out like, oh, yeah, he's some kid from Rolling Stone, when in fact he was a guy who, you know, of all the people who covered the war in Iraq, he actually could do a really good job of telling you who is who and who they're fighting for and what kind of progress they're making and what kind of setbacks they're facing. And his first fiance had been murdered by al-Qaeda guys or Sunni insurgent fighters, at least, in Iraq War II. So he was a serious-ass war reporter. So they were, I mean, hell, they could have just checked my archives to know that this Rolling Stone guy is no pushover (laughs) and you're not going to be able to make him parrot your line. He knows the difference between these different factions and he knows what they're about. And so, you know, they were really getting themselves into a big mess, giving that much access to, to Michael Hastings simply because he was that good of a reporter. Yeah, they didn't really get into his background or his character very much in the movie, but they did have that that part where he's kind of, you know, in voiceover narrator form, sort of speculating on, like, why these guys would have brought him in and then gotten drunk and all started shooting off their mouth in front of him. And he does – I forget exactly what he says. He says something about, like, they basically were just, you know, arrogant – and just you know, yeah, he goes that's hubris. That was his only explanation. Is hubris. Yeah. They thought that they were the best, most important men in the world, and they just assumed they'd never questioned the idea that he would agree with that, and that he would portray them that way. Yeah, I thought that was like, that, man, they should have just looked him up. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, they yeah. should just put him in Google and went, oh, I see. But yeah, okay. I thought it was some of the more subversive bits of the movie where they kind of called out the arrogance of a lot of these guys, you know, these military guys where they, they sort of think that they can do anything. And even though a war hasn't been won uh, for all these years, they're like, well, it's just because, you know, the right leader hasn't come in and gotten the job done yet. This, this arrogance. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually not read Hastings book, the operator. Oh, you got to man. Okay. Yeah. I've, I've, I've read some of his articles. That? Sure. So the story about the book itself is that, I've got this thing where I don't want to interview anybody about their book until I've read the whole thing so I can really interview them about the substance of the book. But then I always have a million things to do and I never get my books read. Sure. So I had spent years interviewing Hastings about everything he wrote. I mean, when the runaway general came out, I interviewed him that night, you know, kind of thing. Um, And I talked to him a lot of times. And then when that book came out, I read about half of it. And then I don't know exactly what came up. I forget exactly the timeline, but something had come up, another book or just something. And I never finished the book. And then it ended up sitting on my shelf. And then I quit interviewing him because I was too embarrassed to have not read his book and interview him about the book. And then so that was stupid. So I quit interviewing him for no reason, (laughs) no good reason. And then he died. And so I always felt like a real jerk about that because we're, you know, not really like friends, friends, but sort of like I am with Eric Margulies. You know what I mean? We're like, yeah, we're kind of pals. We're we're a hell of acquaintances on a long distance radio interview relationship. You know what I mean? Kind sure. of a thing. And, um, and I really let that friendship or pseudo type, uh, friendship thing, uh, fall apart only for my own stupid kind of, um, uh, pet motivations there about getting people's books completed. And then of course, uh, and I'll get back to him dying in a second, but then after he died or really in preparation for writing my own book about this, I finally sat down and read it. And of course, in fact, looking for a footnote, I couldn't find. I sat and read the thing twice. No problem. It's actually a really fun and easy read and 
you know, you can get all the way through that thing if you're going fast in maybe a couple of hours. And so it's really just unforgivable. Like, <laughs> I really feel bad about that. Um, and then I also want to make a remark here about his death because, you know, a lot of people have a lot of opinions about it. And yeah, I, I was going to ask you too. what you thought. Yeah. Well, so uh, I guess bottom line first is that his brother was not suspicious. And his brother, in fact, had come to L.A. to, you know, try to help him because he was in the middle of, you know, some form of a nervous breakdown or another, as his brother described it. And uh, that was why he had come. And so when he found out that he had died in a car crash, high speed or whatever, he was just sad. He didn't think that it was uh, that it indicated any foul play at all. And like I said, uh, he had been in two wars. I know he had seen at least the immediate aftermath of a suicide bombing at the gates of a base in Afghanistan. That's not in the movie, but he did write about it and talk about it on my show. And as I said, his his fiance, his uh, his what would have been his first wife there. Uh, had been murdered in Iraq and whatever. So, you know, it made sense that the that he had PTSD. In fact, I remember honestly seeing him on MSNBC a couple weeks before me and Sheldon Richmond had a ritual that if Michael Hastings was ever on TV, we'd call each other to turn it on. And uh, and he, it was actually really funny because he was ridiculing the other guests on the show and whatever, but I could tell he was a bit of a mess there. And anyway, so his brother gave a really long and in-depth interview to a family friend who is a journalist and posted it on his own blog. And I think if you just search for Michael Hastings' brother, you can find it. This is really long, in-depth interview. They talk all about the guy and everything. And, like, that's my bottom line is if that's what his brother thinks. And his brother was there, and his brother was there because he was in the middle of having a real hard time and that kind of thing. I can't really dispute that. But I should mention at least, and what for people not familiar, he died going 100 miles an hour down Highland in L.A., and which is you know a 40 mile an hour street, and uh, hit a palm tree and uh, was driving a Mercedes coupe and it uh, exploded and he died in that. At least he died immediately. But so the thing of it is, is hey man, suspicious single vehicle accident from a badass reporter, a guy who didn't just get McChrystal fired, but who was guaranteed to be a pain in the ass, a thorn in the side of power forever, right? People said, oh, my God, he was in the middle of writing something about the CIA. Well, I'll tell you what, if he had died at 80 years old in the rocking chair, he'd have been in the middle of writing something about the CIA. That's who he was. He was a badass reporter, and he only cared about the most important things. And so, you know, there's a real strong correlation there. I can't deny it, and I'll tell you this. It's in the book, The Operators, that the character who... I guess maybe the characters played by the seal in the movie is, you know, switched out. But anyway, in the in the book, one of McChrystal's men was a British SAS officer. And um, he told McChrystal in plain, I mean, pardon me, told uh, Hastings in plain language to his face. If we don't like this article, if you F us over on this article, I'll kill you. And it wasn't like, ha, 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 here, let me buy you a beer now or anything like that. It was just straight up threatened to murder him. And that and he says in the book that when McChrystal comes in the room, he's like, McChrystal, your guy just threatened to kill me. Or maybe it was McChrystal's aide comes in or so a higher up guy comes in and maybe McChrystal himself. And the guy gets in trouble like what he he said, what to you? Don't worry, we'll take care of it. Kind of a thing. It was a little scene that took place. And that's in the book. And. Would these guys do that? Hey, man, you know, 
They're professional killers. And no law applies to them, you know, on the level of the, the Joint Special Operations Command. I mean, these are the kind of guys who call presidents by their first name and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, I always thought it looked – it just looked fishy from a distance. I, I I have no claim to any, you know, any certainty about about any of that. But like yeah, as, me as far as, as, I far mean, as, exactly as I what say, happened, but yeah, I mean, it is it is kind of fishy how often when there's a journalist who's actually being a real journalist, uh, they will you know suddenly die under at least somewhat shady circumstances. I mean, I've heard people say that that particular car shouldn't have blown up that easily based on, you know, the nature of the crash. But what do I know? I'm not an expert on all that stuff. So, you know, yeah. I, I don't have an education. You know, I saw opinion. car guys. I saw car guys discussing all that right away. Um, you know, just kind of lurking in comment sections uh, at car websites where, where they were talking about it. And there was enough doubt there that like, yeah, come on, man, that the motor broke free of its mounts and went hurtling down the street because the rest of the cars came to a dead stop. And but the engine was still going 100 miles an hour. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know. I'm not the master of the theory of relativity in this and that, but doesn't seem unlikely to me. And I think they had plenty of examples, too, mm-hmm. of pieces of cars being hurtled far on impact with a tree and that kind of thing. So, yeah. And, and you know, he hit a fire hydrant, ran basically over a fire hydrant, too, which they were saying, you know, this is the spark and the break in the fuel line and all of that already before he even hits the tree. So, I mean, I, I can't imagine a, a, a car hitting a tree going that fast and not exploding, basically. I mean, that's all I know. I, and I'm not the expert, but it's a hell of a thing. I, I, I'm not trying to completely dismiss it and be the great debunker of the story or whatever, but I guess at the end of the day, I got to side with his brother. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and then there's, you know, the I've heard a lot of comparisons to Gary Webb too, where people are like, you know, well, that was just see, that's a that's a great example. I mean, that guy, that was a straight up suicide, yeah. absolutely a suicide. And everybody who knew him knew that he was suicidally depressed. He did it with his own father's gun, and yes, it happens the two gunshots thing. But he asked Robert Perry or any of those guys who knew him. I mean, he had signed over all of his everything to his ex-wife and. Someone had, you know, he was selling his house. Someone had stolen his motorcycle and he was, you know, the CIA had absolutely ruined him. They drove him to it. Don't get me wrong, man. The guys at the Washington Post that, you know, and the L.A. Times that conspired together to destroy Gary Webb. They should all have to go kill themselves for what they did to him. They're better, a better man than them by a million, you know, and yet everyone who knew him was like, oh, man, that's sad. And then everybody who had a nickel to make off it went oh the cia murdered him you know what if they were gonna murder him they would have murdered him while he was flying around going down to nicaragua doing interviews before he published anything you know yeah yeah they instead they waited until his career was you know tanked yeah uh, robert perry's the man on that anybody wants to know and i i would stand on what robert perry says about that subject full stop well uh what's your take as as someone who's read Hastings book and you know you cited a bunch of times in your own book what's your take on the degree to which the movie uh kind of overall is is similar to the book versus not i mean obviously the movie has a bit of a satirical you know kind of black comedy tone to it so mm-hmm. i'm sure that's different from from the book but i mean overall are there any like real significant differences in terms of the story or at least any any that you caught? You know, no, not really. I mean, 
some of the things that they worked in there was like, oh, my God, we think that Hamid Karzai's brother might be a heroin dealer. And it's like, yeah, come on, man. You know, stuff like that. But it's like they got to work in the dialogue somehow. Mm -hmm. But it's in there, you know. So, I mean, I think and they do talk about, you know, they it's hard to like, you know, write a movie. I'm not I'm not being a critic of the screenplay here, really. And they do show that like, hey. Have the translator tell this guy to do what I say. And they're like, man, the the GI tells his sergeant, you know, come on. This guy speaks Dari. This guy speaks Pashto. I, what are we doing here? I can't. They're not trying. And he goes, well, figure it out. I don't know. But but the point being that like, hey, man, North Afghanistan is sort of kind of a separate country. <laughs> you know, like these this is the idea that and, and this is something that maybe they could have had the Brit explain. You know, this could have been maybe a throwaway line. That the Pashtuns are 40% of the country, but the other 60% is all divided up by Hazaras, Uzbeks, Tajiks, and Turkmen, and God knows what. And so, in other words, there is no majority ethnicity. The Pashtuns are a minority, but they're the plurality. They're the biggest minority group in the country, so to speak, right at 40%. And you're trying to force a coalition of Tajiks and Uzbeks basically on them. And it just isn't going to fly. And that's what and they show that over and over again, where the, the guys in the Afghan army, they're, Hey man, they're just trying to get home tonight, man. They're not out there fighting for their country. They're hoping to eat and maybe take home a pair of boots. Um, but they're not out there to go and, and liberate and save Hellman province, you know, like, I don't know. Oklahomans would go to help liberate West Texas if it ever got conquered by the Chinese or something. You know what I mean? Like there's no feeling of patriotism that we're all working together here for a greater goal. It's we are all suffering the presence of the Americans. And how can we possibly get by until they finally leave us alone? By the way, speaking of Karzai, I've got to say Ben Kingsley as Karzai. Yeah. That was Wouldn't awesome. Great? Yeah. <laughs> Watching Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. And and he's just completely useless, and he kind of knows it. I mean, he was great. I love when uh, at the very beginning, when uh, General McMahon tells Karzai that we're going to take things in a new direction, and then he kind of explains what he means. He's basically talking about coin stuff, and then Karzai goes, "Oh, that kind of sounds a lot like the old direction." <laughs> Right. And, and and then after a minute, Karzai kind of says, oh, but I'm sure it'll work this time because you're a different dude. You know? Yeah. I mean, I, I appreciated that they got a, they got a certain amount of cynicism in there. And um, I, I wondered, you know, when you look at, I don't know if you've ever looked at like the reviews of this movie, you know, Rotten Tomatoes. Oh, right? I haven't. They're, they're not great. They're like, I guess what they would call mixed reviews, you know, like maybe a, I want to say it was like a 60 on Rotten Tomatoes or something. Not great. And, and I, I, kind of wonder if it might just be that like Americans don't like cynicism um, or, or don't quite get that, that kind of humor, that kind of gallows humor about how, how stupid all this stuff is. Yeah. Well, you know, I think people really, they identify their own self with government with, you know, uh, the society, the country and the state and then the people who run it and the decisions they make. And, you know, how hard is it to spend 16 years cheering for this and then watch a movie about how, man, you'd have to be a damn fool to believe in this thing. It's easier to go, well, I don't like the movie. (laughs) You know what I mean? Otherwise, 
what am I doing cheering at the airport, encouraging these guys to stay in the service, to kill and risk their lives over something that's not believable? You know, somehow we keep these things separate. And well, and that's how, right, is we ignore stuff like this. It's always fascinating to me. And I got to admit, I don't watch primetime TV kind of stuff very much. But still, I'm pretty sure that I'm right about, you know, how other than the stories that are, you know, the shows that are like Homeland or whatever, you know, police state shows about the terrorist threat that the rest of TV, all the characters act like none of this is going on. Right. Like I watched uh, I never had HBO, but I downloaded years and years worth of Curb Your Enthusiasm uh, one time years ago and uh, started watching it. And there's just no reference to the wars anywhere other than maybe one time he's at the airport and there's some guys in camouflage walking around behind him or something. But just, you know, I'm just making this up. I'm just betting that, you know, whatever the Big Bang Theory and all of these shows, there's not a character who's like constantly sitting in the corner of the room, staring at his computer, looking at antiwar.com, complaining about how Obama's just like Bush. I can't believe it or whatever. There's just there's not a character like that in the lives lived by any of the characters in any of America's TV shows. It's just not part of who we are and what we're about. It's excluded from that kind of narrative about what is normal behavior and what is not and what's normal is loving it or ignoring it but sitting around being obsessed and against it and and wanting to figure out a way to try to stop it no there's just nobody like that on any tv show that i know of anyway you know yeah well most of the the mainstream you know companies that make the tv shows and the movies they they want to pander to the existing mainstream views on everything. And, you know, they're all just kind of, kind of conforming, I guess. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, Penn and Teller, they do that show BS on Showtime. I think they still do it for years and years. And I've watched years and years. I'll finally, I was going to kill myself at no longer having any faith in humanity whatsoever. So I had to quit watching it. But, um, even these guys who call BS on everything, they won't do one on the American empire. Well, does it keep us safe or doesn't it? Is this about protecting us and being our security force or is it something else? You can't do a half hour on that. Why not? Like just because you think soldiers won't like you anymore, maybe they'll love you more than ever. Yeah, I mean, my experience is that, and probably yours is the same, that when you talk to veterans, more often than not, they're, you know, they're amenable to the uh, right. And especially coming from a guy like Penn Jillette, right? Because he's no commie. He doesn't talk like a commie because he's not one. So if he really said like, geez, from a my point of view point of view, this actually really doesn't make sense, then that would be make it easy for right wingers to identify with him, to be able to accept that from a guy like him, as opposed to a guy like Michael Moore or somebody like that. Yeah, so, no. yeah, lead. I'm not trying to just pick on Pendulette in your episode, but, you know, <laughs> for for people who can, they should, it seems like to me, you know. Yeah, it, I'm always curious, like when you look higher up in the, the chain of command within Hollywood and within the major, you know, networks and things. I mean, first off, there's all this scandal coming out now about how they're all a bunch of uh, of, of like perverts and sex fiends and crazy shit like that. But. I'm always curious too, when you go higher up, like who's connected to who, you know, sort of like the, the real conspiracy stuff, you know, the, the connections between these people. And one of the things I've been interested in lately that I'll probably cover more on my show in the future is 
the degree to which the Pentagon and the CIA and so on have massive amounts of direct influence over Hollywood, over even even sometimes literally rewriting scripts. I mean, it's just incredible how basically they, they'll use the the incentive of um, we'll let you film on our at our facilities. We'll lend you equipment to kind of you know if you have a war movie, we'll we'll fly some real fighter jets around in the background for you. This is all stuff that would cost the film companies exorbitant amounts of money if they had to actually pay for it. And the the military or the CIA, whoever it is, um, they'll they'll spot you for it. But the strings attached are we literally get to read your script and have to approve it and. I mean, it as I as I've started to learn some of this stuff, I was just blown away. Um, it was it was worse than I thought. Let's put it that way. Like I always kind of understood that there was a significant uh, Pentagon and CIA influence on Hollywood, but it's like it's way way more pervasive than I ever suspected. But every now and then a movie comes along that uh, that sort of challenges that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm just like you. I I kind of always known a bit about that, but I haven't done the work. I actually have maybe two or three books on the shelf somewhere uh, that I'm supposed to get to about this. Um, But I've always given it kind of a short shrift. But yeah, it is extremely important. I mean, if if anybody's ever um, seen the Transformers movies, I mean, that thing is just I I think I saw the first one when it, you know, whatever. and, And it was just nothing but Lockheed products in every frame. And it was, you know, it was half a, an advertisement for, you know, joining the actual service and half an advertisement, I, I guess, to the dads in the audience to go ahead and invest in Lockheed, <laughs> you know, or something. It was pretty out of control, you know, like over the top and brazen about it. You know what I sure. mean? We're like, geez, guys, why don't you just shoot Lockheed logos at me or something during this or, or shoot my local recruiters, uh, phone number that through subliminal messages. <laughs> um, and you know, there's, I wish I could remember them all off the top of my head, but I know there's one from, uh, last year, 2016 called the occupation of the American mind. That's all about the portrayal of Arabs and particularly Palestinians, I guess, in Hollywood movies and in therefore the American psyche and going way back and, People like to fight about it, so I like to help promote it. It's uh, available on the Pirate Bay. People do bit torrents. Just go to the Pirate Bay and search the occupation of the American mind. I guess I should say, hey, buy it on iTunes or wherever they sell it if you want to help support. But also, you can get it for free. If you'll only watch it for free, you can get it for free. It's the occupation of the American mind. And, yeah, you know, maybe we need to do a better job of that, <laughs> you know, sneaking our messages into popular culture instead of just railing here against their lies with facts that don't seem to really make much of an impression like right isn't that the thing right that's what you would need you would need a character on the big bang theory where even if he's like skippy the next door neighbor idiot or whatever he's still he's the guy who's constantly complaining about the secretary of defense said something today but it wasn't true right and it doesn't have to be important even right it could just be a thing where like doesn't everybody have that one friend who really hates the wars? Right? Don't we all at least have one friend like that, you know? And just portray it, the reality, that way, that that is how our society is. There's always at least one of us is really upset about this Yemen thing, whatever it is, or this NSA spying thing, whatever it is, you know? 
Yeah, except then the, the same company that uh, makes that show is in a conglomerate with the company that's trying to make the new Avengers movie, and they're trying to get the Pentagon to spot them a bunch of gear to put in the background, you know, fighter planes and whatever. So, yep. you know, they don't they don't want to rock the boat. It seems like the only movies that come out that are, um, you know, deal more, more realistically slash cynically with these sorts of things, they're like lower budget, you know, more indie movies. This this movie I couldn't quite figure out. Uh, War Machine. I could. I mean, it it didn't take as radical of a stance as you or I would. But on the other hand, I mean, it was pretty pretty cutting in some some of its uh, satirization. I mean, when they, I thought they did a pretty good job of poking fun at uh, a coin. You know, when they, when they have him up there um, in front of the whiteboard with clear build hold or whatever um clear hold build on the whiteboard and he's doing insurgent math and he's like two mi- 10 minus 2 equals 20 and you know all that stuff i mean i thought it did a pretty pretty good job poking fun at coin mm-hmm. yeah at one point they, he has a chart behind him that has like 175 arrows going all different directions as some the the most insane version of a flow chart like a rube goldberg flow chart that you could possibly have you know um, and yet, you know, actually, I think the insurgent math thing is and this goes for the whole damn terror war. And, you know, it's not an exact ratio, but the whole thing about 10 minus two equals 20. I mean, that shows us the absurd position that we're in. And what he's saying is he's adjusting to the reality. He's not actually adjusting to it. He's recognizing that the situation is, as he says, if you kill two guys, you create 20 new enemies. And that's the way this goes. That's the insurgent math. That's why they're supposed to go out there and be heroically restrained and only kill the people who really, really need killing, which, of course, doesn't work. They end up killing anybody around. They end up doing drone strikes and night raids and all kinds of things and victimizing people in all different ways and creating new enemies all the time. But at least he's being honest about why they fight. They fight because we're occupying their country. Nobody, you know, the Afghan Taliban has never attacked the United States. The Pakistani Taliban only did once, and that was when they sent Faisal Shahzad to try to blow up Times Square. And he, um, first of all, he failed. But secondly, they did that after years straight of Obama's drone war against the Pakistani Taliban, which has no beef with us otherwise whatsoever. And the Afghan Taliban still has not attacked American interests anywhere in the world other than inside Afghanistan. So insurgent math. Yeah, we we're getting, you know, the neighbor kid at least killed over there, killing these guys when every time they do, even according to our most celebrated generals, every time they kill their enemy, they create more enemies. You know, as I like quoting this all the time, because, hey, it worked on me. Cat Williams, the great uh, comedian, said, hey, tell me what the Iraqi army uniform looks like. He goes, no, don't worry, I'll wait. Go ahead. He goes, that's right, because you've never seen the uniform. You know why? Because we're not killing their army. We're killing them. You understand? We're at war against the people of that country. And it's the same thing, of course, in Afghanistan. You just have to, you know, take a moment to stop and think it through for a second. There's no secret about it. They say, again, in the movie, something that they get right, is that there's no unified Taliban insurgency to defeat or to negotiate with. 
The insurgency is made up of the people of Pashtunistan. That's it. So you can't negotiate with that, and you sure as hell can't defeat it unless you're just going to call in H-bomb strikes. And yet, what did any of these people ever do to us anyway? Nothing. The following is a completely bullshit ad for a product that doesn't exist. This ad is designed merely to make one consider supporting the Dangerous History Podcast directly and is not actually trying to get you to buy some dumb shit so that the Dangerous History Podcast can get a tiny percentage commission. Hey guys, ever had this problem? Ever had the mail arrive at your house and it doesn't contain a box of random shit? I know we've all suffered from this inconvenience. Well, now we can solve that thanks to Box O Shit. Sign up for Box O Shit. And for a nominal fee per month, $9.95 per month plus shipping handling charge of $49.99 per week, you will get a weekly random box of shit and or crap arriving directly on your door. What'll be in it? Well, not literally feces, but the surprise is you don't know what'll be in it. Basically, it'll be whatever cruddy, useless, worthless ephemera we can find on sale that week. It might be Critters 2 Thermoses. It could be a box full of dozens and dozens of Jar Jar Binks action figures. Maybe it'll be a collection of every single movie ever made, starring Steve Gutenberg on Betamax. You'll just never know, but you'll be glad you have it. No more arriving home to find your front stoop uncluttered, bereft of a box full of random worthless ephemera. Go to boxofshit.com slash DHP today and sign up. That's box, the letter O, shit dot com slash dhp seriously we'd rather not advertise random shit on the dhp so please consider going to patreon.com slash prophecyj so that we don't have to resort to such measures to stay in business thanks and now back to the show what did you think of uh cam from ferris bueller who was being the uh the, oh yeah that the was him, huh? character that was that guy from ferris bueller huh yeah. Isn't that interesting, man? I didn't make that connection. Oh, yeah. It's all these 80s. It's Anthony Michael Hall. It's the guy. It's Cam from Ferris Bueller. Um. Um, man, you just totally threw me for a loop. That's hilarious. Um, yeah. So, yeah, they have a great uh, Richard Holbrook character. And then they have a great, as you say, Eikenberry character. And these are the guys who know better. In fact, I was just thinking, I, you know, I, I rewatched it last night. And there's a part where they're on the airplane. And the the Ferris Bueller guy is telling him, look, man, there's been no victory possible here since the first year. And it the thing is, the way they say it, it makes it sound like, well, he's just so smug and he's such a jerk about it. And he's got, you know, a glass of fine liquor in his hand. And so he's being so dismissive. And I just wish they'd given him like two more sentences right there that, listen, we actually never had to fight the Pashtun insurgency. And they the Taliban withdrew from the capital city. They gave up the fight. America put a Pashtun of the Popolzai tribe from Kandahar in power, Karzai, in power in Kabul. And that was good enough for them. It's not like the Taliban withdrew swearing revenge and that they would return. They didn't. They gave up. They were like, okay, that's it. We don't want to, you know, mass slaughter here. Go ahead. They withdrew from the cities. They let the Americans win. I mean, not that they had much choice, but you understand. They didn't vow that we're coming back again and all this. The Americans picked this fight, and this is in my book, but it's also, especially, it's in uh, No Good Men Among the Living by the great Anand Gopal. No Good Men Among the Living. And uh, in that book, he shows how it was only because the Americans insisted on staying and insisted on siding with these and those against their enemies that they ended up creating this insurgency that now they cannot possibly defeat. And so there, that's it. 
We created an enemy we didn't need. Okay, I, I didn't say that in two more sentences. I, I, I was trying to stay on point there, what he could have said in the movie. But that's the deal. We create, by staying, we created an insurgency that now we can't defeat. And that's what happened in that first year, that first two years there. That didn't have to happen. And as, as I argue in my book, we really didn't need to invade at all. We could have negotiated to get the Taliban to hand over bin Laden and all of his men. And they were willing to negotiate. But the American negotiation was do everything we say immediately with no conditions whatsoever or we'll bomb you. And that's not a negotiation. And that's why it didn't work. They had by the time the bomb started falling in October of 01, the Taliban had dropped all conditions on the handover of these guys other than it had to be to any third state. Any other of the 192 countries in the world, they would have handed them over to them who, you know, could have been Jordan, could have been anyone who would have could have been the UK or Canada or Mexico at that point who would have turned them right over to America anyway. So they didn't even have to have a war. But then even if you think, no, man, you had to go in there and kill Al Qaeda. Well, they let half of them go or more anyway. But then even if you think that they still didn't have to have a war against the Taliban. But even if you think, no, man, America had to make an example out of the Taliban and show that -uh, no state could ever harbor a terrorist group that would attack us like this or they're going to pay. Call it a punitive raid. We're never going to put up with that. Blam. So we had to have a war against the Taliban. Fine. You still didn't have to stay. But then you go, no, we had to stay to make sure the Taliban were going to take back the capital city of Kabul. Okay, fine. But you still didn't have to pick a fight with the insurgency and prop up a whole new government to try to rule over Pashtunistan uh, full of a bunch of rapists and murderers and drug dealers and warlords uh, who would abuse their power and create this insurgency against you. So and then that's where we're at is fighting an insurgency that now we can't defeat, that we never needed to have and that now we can't defeat in a war that we never needed to start in the first place. And I wonder when – the Rolling Stone article gets published and uh, McChrystal or McMahon finally gets some face time with the president to get fired. I wonder, and there's, you know, it's obviously just speculation. There's no way to read someone's mind, but whether or not being so, so open mouthed in front of the Rolling Stone reporter, you know, bashing the president and all that stuff in front of a reporter, which seems like reckless stupidity or perhaps arrogance, but I almost wonder, sort of putting on my Sigmund Freud hat, right, where there's kind of no accidents, maybe on some level, perhaps even subconsciously, McChrystal realized this was not a winnable situation, no matter mm. what great management books he read. Well, and, it may be the Ferris Bueller guy who tells him, you know, or you could just get fired. Somebody yeah. tells him that as like advice. Of, That's true. There's one way out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, d- did he – did he – whether he was deliberately consciously doing it or, or it was more of like a Freudian subconscious thing. Did he kind of realize like, there's no, there's no upside to this. Let me just get out of here. And so his, you know, allowing his men to mouth off in front of the reporter and him mouthing off in front of the reporter and all that, like, you know, just kind of, just kind of committing career suicide. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, uh, right as we were talking before you hit record on this interview, I've been saving it. I just got this link in. President Trump still hasn't spoken to his top general in Afghanistan, <laughs> General John Nicholson. Nice. And John Nicholson, of course, is in the book uh, justifying 
going to Hellman for no reason instead of Kandahar and saying that we didn't want to hurt the feelings of the Canadians who were supposedly holding down Kandahar. Wow. Make them feel bad because <laughs> showing up would imply that they hadn't done a good enough job. And we have these warriors' feelings to think about, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder if any of the, the right-wingers who would criticize Obama for not spending enough time with McChrystal are going to are going to attack Trump for, you know, doing the same thing. No, man. No, I mean, I think as we're seeing this week, as we've all already known, partisanship just makes people so horrible and stupid and hypocritical. It's just insane, you know. And, of course, these sex abuse scandals are the things that gets everybody's attention. But it's the same on everything, you know. And they love calling out each other's hypocrisy. And then they only use the other guy's hypocrisy to justify their own. Instead of being above that, you know, they they justify their uh, abuser and say, oh, yeah, but you have some, too. Right. Instead of saying, oi, cast out those among ours who are like you guys or even that. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's just. And so and the wars, it couldn't be more obvious. I mean, think about the amount of punishment inflicted by Barack Obama on the anti-war movement just by showing up. <laughs> Old, tall, dark, and handsome came, and they didn't say another word about it. And that goes from – that's everybody to the right of the communists and to the left of the republicans, everyone between them. All the progressives and all the liberals just shut their damn mouths. And, of course, you know, in media there are some exceptions, but, you know, in the hard leftists, I, I carve out an exception for them. The real ass leftists, they stay anti-war, and a lot of them even prioritize it and can't be fooled with all this – bait and switch stuff but i mean even now people just they're absolutely insane about donald trump they're just insane about donald trump and yet what do they never do attack him for bombing afghanistan pakistan yemen somalia libya iraq syria now niger i lost count right there already well i wasn't trying to count but just thinking back i can't go wait was that seven or nine or what That's how many countries Donald Trump is bombing. And the liberals have not a word to say about it because, and and Dave Smith said this best, he said, you know, the the previous president was doing the exact same thing. And they said that he was the best president ever. So now how are they going to rationalize that? They're not. So what are they going to do? They're just going to keep their mouth shut. And they're going to accuse Donald Trump of being too right wing on gender issues or whatever. Yeah, yeah. They're not going to say anything about the the guess what? Even transgendered people are starving to death in Yemen right now. How about (laughs) that? You know, they have transgendered Yemenis. What about them? But they don't. Nobody cares about that. Yeah. Yep. And yeah, I've heard I've heard Dave Smith also put it, you know, pretty. Uh, as as you would expect a comedian to do, you know, pretty succinctly and 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 darkly funny, where he says Trump can you know drop some high explosives on a bunch of children, and the same day can treat can tweet something that's insensitive towards transgender people or gay people or whatever, and all the left wants to talk about is the offensive tweet, you know, not not dropping high explosive on children. Yeah. Well, and that goes really for everybody, too, because it's simply the lowest common denominator. It's called that for a reason. And it's always easier to understand and be upset about something someone said than something someone did. 
because now you actually have to know a thing or two about something, and that's a giant pain in the neck. So instead, oh, boo-hoo, you said something that made my feelings hurt. So. Yeah, and you or know that I imagine would hurt the feelings of someone else. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and I'm thinking back, you know, the only time the entire time Trump has been president, the only time that I can remember the kind of center left mainstream media, you know, your CNN types and whatever, the only time I can remember them being positive at all about Trump was when he launched those cruise missiles at Syria. Yep. Remember that for like two or three days, they were like, he's so presidential. He's a real leader now. You know. Yeah. Well, and as we know now and really knew then, if you're listening to my show, that was Al Qaeda. That was a hoax. The excuse for that. And the strikes against Assad were strikes for Al Qaeda there. And that's who the Assad regime is at war against. And yet, whatever. Hey, our narrative has it that this is what Saudi and Israel want. This is what the permanent American state wants. CIA and State Department say that Assad is the bad guy. So what are we supposed to do? Think for ourselves for one minute? Assad is at war with men who are sworn loyal to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the butcher of New York City. But I'm supposed to think that he's worse than them? When every Christian and Druze and Shiite and Alawite group and at least a plurality, maybe a majority of the Sunni Arabs of Syria all side with him against a bunch of head-chopping lunatics? And I'm supposed to hate the Islamic State, which is just a break-off group of the al-Nusra Front, the al-Qaeda in Syria. They're both just break-off groups of al-Qaeda, and, and the al-Nusra Front are the ones who are still loyal to Zawahiri, unlike ISIS. I'm supposed to hate them in East Syria, but love them in the West, as long as they're fighting Assad? And then as long as Trump bombs Assad, now that's what makes him finally presidential. I mean, that much is true, but I don't mean it the way they do. Right. It's amazing. It really, you know, the whole history of Obama, as long as we're on this, the whole history of Obama and the CIA and our allies war in Syria since 2011 is some serious, insane Twilight Zone stuff. You know, I mean, you think about the level of unreality surrounding the idea that Iraq was going to attack the United States of America if we didn't preempt them first and all of this madness. Well, how about what if Saddam had already been right in the middle of fighting against a bin Ladenite insurgency at the time that we came and overthrew him? And that's what they were doing in Syria. Here he's putting down a bin Ladenite insurgency and America's taking the side of the bin Ladenites. And they go, no, nah, we're just back in the moderates like the Al-Farouk Brigade and the Northern Storm Brigade and the Alzinki Brigade and this and that. Except the Al-Farouk Brigade, that was the cannibal that was eating the soldier's heart. Yeah. And the Northern Storm Brigade, McCain's friends, they admitted on camera to Time Magazine, yeah, we're all veterans of Al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II where we killed Americans. And then the Alzinki, they're the ones who were on film beheading a little Palestinian child, a 12-year-old boy who they accused of fighting against them in the war in Syria. These are the moderates when really all the help that the CIA and our allies gave them, almost all of it ended up going straight into the hands of the jihadis who we know are even worse, such as the al-Nusra Front, Arar al-Sham, and later the Islamic State. And this is where the Islamic State came from. Obama built it for them. The plan was for them to have an Islamic State, I guess, in eastern Syria. That's what the DIA memo 
of 2012 says they're building an Islamist principality in eastern Syria. And then the only problem then was when it blew back too badly and they conquered all of western Iraq, just as Patrick Coburn had been predicting could happen on my show for a year before it did happen, uh, right even probably before ISIS and al-Nusra split up, he was talking about on my show how western Iraq is wide open for these guys. We call the Islamic State of Iraq, they recall the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, that's just the name of a group, but it could be a place. Look at the way we're going. And then it was. And then in 2014, they created their caliphate. They did roll in and conquer all of western Iraq. And only now, after three years of bombing them and backing the Iranian-backed Shiite militias in Iraq against them again, have uh, the American and their allied forces and the, the Kurdish Peshmergas beaten the Islamic State and, and pushed it out of western Iraq and also smashed it in Raqqa and eastern Syria as well with the help of the Syrian Kurds there. And this, But you're not supposed to know or understand any of this. That America just straight up CIA, Saudi, Turkey, Qatar, and Israel all just outright, really in front of everyone's face. They just never tell you the narrative, but all the facts are there. You can Google this in an instant. It's all in the New York Times and the Washington Post. It's not even secret, really. Um, that you know, it's the Timber Sycamore program. That's what CIA called it. They spent a billion dollars a year supporting these jihadists that led to all this. And it's the highest treason. I mean, there's no treason. This Obama makes Benedict Arnold look like George Washington straight. I mean, it's it's absolutely unbelievable. And the only reason it's like he's protected by all the silly conspiracy theories about how he's a Kenyan Islamist secret Muslim Brotherhood agent, because all that stuff is so silly. It helps to obscure the fact that actually he behaved as president exactly as he would if any of that crazy stuff was really true. It's exactly what he did was back Al Qaeda in Syria to the point it created the Islamic State. He, then he had to launch an entire Iraq War three just to undo what he did in 2011 through 14. From from the perspective of a reasonable person looking at all this and if basically it seems to me like there's two there's two possibilities. There's what we always kind of get back to kind of a version of stupidity or the plan. In other words, there appears to be no coherent strategy. If the strategy, if the goal is supposed to be to make America safer and, or make the middle East less screwed up. If, if those are, if those are the goals, there appears to be no such thing as a, as a coherent strategy. It's like completely self-contradictory. They're working against themselves a lot of the time. And, seems to me the possibility is either we've got complete dupes running everything who can't put together the things that you can put together and that many of the people that you interview all the time can put together about how, how nonsensical and contradictory this stuff is, or that they do have a strategy, but it's not the strategy that we think it is. Yeah. Well, yeah. First of all, the strategy is certainly not protect the American people from bin Ladenite terrorism at all costs. You can just forget that. You know, uh, Andrew Basevich has this great book, America's War for the Greater Middle East. Does that sound like a war on terrorism to you? Nah, come on. Mm -hmm. Terrorism is a side effect of America's imperial project there. And our imperial project in the Middle East is, you know, uh, some variant of the exact same policy replicated around the world, which is dominance. That's it. Empire. And at the, I'm sorry, I forget. I was just talking about this on another interview this morning. I was making sure I'm not repeating myself from just earlier in this interview. 
you know, the strategy is uh, that once the Soviet Union was out of the way, that America would seize what they call their unipolar moment to build a world empire so powerful that no power or combination of powers would ever dream of even trying to challenge it. And so that's where we're at. And this is the policy. You can read it in the defense planning guidance of 1992 that Dick Cheney's staff, which was Scooter Libby, Paul Wolfowitz and Zalmig Khalilzad uh, were the ones who wrote it up. Um, and uh, then, of course, uh, probably more famously is Rebuilding America's Defenses by the Project for a New American Century that was published in 1998. And, you know, there are variations of this since then. The Democrats call it, oh, the liberal world order, as though the end is the international institutions themselves when they're really mechanisms of American imperial power. That's what it is, is it's the American world order. And then, so yes, this generates terrorism, and then terrorism becomes a great excuse, a great fig leaf for why we're over there doing what we're doing in the first place. But, I mean, come on. Even if you conflate al-Qaeda and the Taliban, forget Afghanistan for a minute. How about knocking off Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and Abdullah Saleh uh, down there in Yemen and uh, this you know, basically half a regime change in uh, Syria all this time against these secular dictatorships. What are we doing now? I'll be the first one to teach you that the reason that America has a terrorism problem in the first place is in great part because we back secular dictatorships in the region. No question about that, right? Egypt, primarily uh, Egypt and Saudi Arabia, they're not so secular, but the, the dictators that America supports over the will, against the will of the people of the region. That's a big part of why we have a problem. So I'm not saying we should back these dictators. But then supporting jihadis to overthrow them? Um, you know, I think the jihadis inheriting Western Iraq and Iraq War II uh, are a great part of it for a long time. That was an accident. George Bush Jr. wasn't really trying to do that. But that is what he did by fighting a civil war on behalf of the Shiite factions in Iraq he pushed the Sunnis into the arms of the Bin Ladenites um, and created thousands and thousands of them where they'd never existed before. Then when they came home to Libya and Syria, Obama took their side to, to get rid of Gaddafi and at least put all this pressure on Assad, although I guess he chickened out from a full-scale regime change, which Lord knows he could have done. All he had to do was send in the B-52s and take care of the whole thing if he wanted to. But still, does that sound like it has anything to do with fighting bin Ladenites when it's fighting for bin Ladenites the whole time? When turn on TV and all they do is obsess about Iran, who, regardless of what they say in the propaganda, is an enemy state of the al-Qaeda uh, terrorist group and always has been. Iran, 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 Hezbollah, Hezbollah, Hezbollah. But these are the enemies of al-Qaeda who are the enemies of the United States. I'm not saying back Iran and back Hezbollah. I'm not saying we should be backing anybody. But the fact that we're targeting these forces when they're the ones who are the enemies of those who are actually the enemies of the American people, uh, you know, really goes to show how far away their playbook is from what they tell us they're doing over there. It just you, how do you justify fighting a war for the Libyan Islamic fighting group and Ansar al-Sharia when that's nothing but the Libyan veterans of al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II? It's as simple as that. It's all in the Hillary emails, the ones not released by WikiLeaks or whoever their sources are, but released by the State Department. 
Her emails released by the State Department show her being warned that, hey, not only are these guys al-Qaeda terrorists, but they've been rounding up and murdering blacks just for being black. Beware. That's her friend Sidney Blumenthal warning her. And then she did it anyway, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and, and in fact, Obama himself said that the war in Libya, oh, geez, you know what? I was 51 to 49 percent on that decision. Well, what does that sound like to you other than an admission that he's guilty of the war crime of aggression? Yeah. That he started a war that he did not have to start. And in fact, that one that was fought on behalf of the Libyan KKK, which did massive anti-black pogroms, murdered thousands of people and turned the whole country to chaos since then. But, Dominance, but he, did, that's he, did the it, he did it while being smooth and charming and uh, so. not doing tweets that hurt people's feelings. So it's all good. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, TV says that I like him. So how am I supposed to stand up against that? You know, I don't know. Yeah. Um, and they lied, by the way, and they pretended that Gaddafi had vowed that he was going to murder every last man, woman and child in Benghazi, which was a laughable and ridiculous farce. Anyone who bought that should be absolutely ashamed of themselves for believing that for an instant. What a joke. And of course, the record shows now that the military and the CIA tried to stop her. Right. You would think AFRICOM would have everything to gain. Like, yeah, let's have a big war in Libya. They were like, no, we don't want to do this. They were trying to stop the thing. Hillary stopped them from stopping it. Wow. Incredible. Well, how how does this all end? I mean, looking at the whole thing, uh, the whole policy seems strategically messed up and in many ways counterproductive. But then when I put on my public choice hat and just look at the incentives of the individual politicians and generals and bureaucrats, and I, and I think, um, I think that war machine did a pretty good job, at least illustrating some of this. And also thinking about what we mentioned before about how party politics makes the average people always, you can always get about half the people to support a war as long as it's their president presiding over it. That when you add all these things together, I mean, no, no general, no politician wants to be the one to pull out of these places like Afghanistan, because yep. they, they, like Lyndon Johnson in Vietnam, they're they're worried about getting tarred with the label of you've lost, you're you're a coward, you're a quitter, whatever it is. I mean, it seems like where the American system is at right now, they are they are trapped in the classic imperialist trap, which is you get into a situation where you're overextending yourself, but because of political incentives, no one is able to voluntarily step back. I mean, would have been nice if Ron Paul became president, but obviously that didn't happen. You know, instead, a bunch of people put Trump in the presidency, right? Who who were who were worried to put. Uh, Worried to put Ron Paul in because he's too out of the mainstream, and then you know they lined up and put in Trump. So I mean, how does this all end? I don't, I don't see there ever being anyone who genuinely intends to disengage from this stuff, actually making it into a high enough level of power that they can actually implement that. Yeah. Well, and you know the thing is about, especially on the issue of Afghanistan, for one example, we know that Trump knows better, and I think. This may have started just as a line of attack against Obama, but he ended up convincing himself because, after all, he's right. The war in Afghanistan is a lost cause. We're wasting guys over there. The soldiers that we train over there shoot our guys in the back is how much they like us. These are our allies that we're foisting on uh, the rest of the people of that country, and 
We're spending all this money and make America great again. And he did this for years and years and years. He harassed Obama about it on Twitter. And in fact, he really did convince himself because at one point I found a tweet where he was defending Obama in 2012 for making the military stick to the timeline and pull the troops out. Um, you know, the vast majority of them as they had promised in the deal. And they tried to change the deal. And he said, absolutely not. And Trump said, I side with Obama on this. The generals should shut up and do what they're told and get the troops out of there and this and that. So we know he knows. Also, he's a Republican and he's really tall and he has that whole kind of fake alpha male thing that right wingers all love so much and all of that. And not only that, but he's a famous capitalist. He's very like red, white and blue in that way with his big gold lettered buildings and all of this stuff is, you know, all of his in his TV ads when he finally did run some TV ads there at the end. You know, he absolutely, you know, not cynically just waves that red, white and blue flag like crazy and feels perfectly, you know, sober doing it and all that kind of thing. And so that's the perfect person, the perfect symbol of a person, not the perfect person, the perfect symbol of a of a president who could end all these wars and who could, in fact, in this case, he could say if he really had any substance, if he really meant what he said and and had enough facts that he could marshal in his own brain to defend his position from somebody and this kind of thing. If you could give him a tenth of Ron Paul's spirit and information on this kind of a thing, if he wanted to, I think he could probably I don't know if he could get Mattis to go along with this, but he could find another Mattis like character to be a secretary of defense. Another, you know, somebody along those lines, somebody gruff and and, you know, right wing, faux, macho, whatever, to be the secretary of state. And then they just go around the world making peace. Let's go around the world, uh, go and uh, go to Tehran and shake hands with the Ayatollah, and make a deal with the Ayatollah, fly from there straight to Pyongyang and make a deal with Kim Jong Un. And and who Bush and Obama? Shh, those days are over. It's a whole new day. I mean, if anybody could do this, it would be Trump. Right. That. Oh, whatever Bush and Obama says, that doesn't count as what America says. That's just those two loser, idiot, president, weakling, dopey, former whoever's clean break. And now just make peace. We have hardly anybody left to even pretend to fight at this point. You know, uh, go ahead and. You know, cease and desist in Yemen, pull all the troops out of Afghanistan, pull all the troops out of Iraq and Syria and uh, for that matter, everything they're getting going now in Africa, sail the Navy home and then say that you did it because you're right wing and capitalist and patriotic and Republican. Say that you did it to protect the the freedom of the American people from the long term consequences of all this spending and all this state of emergency on our liberties and make the conservative case for peace. It's easy, right? It's easy. And especially with something like Mad Dog Mattis standing at your right flank, you just go, hey, Mad Dog, you're not scared of the Ayatollah, are you? No, sir. All right. Well, we're getting on a plane and we're going to Tehran. Come on. Right. And then you just do it. But instead, it's Donald Trump. Yep. Instead, it's it's the guy who could but never could and never would and, and couldn't possibly understand even what he does understand. He doesn't understand, you know, like in the case of Afghanistan. In fact, you know, you mentioned the just the politics and the framework of the politics in his Afghan escalation speech. He said, well, we saw what happened when Obama pulled out of Iraq. Yep. ISIS took over. And yet, if you rewind a year and a half back to the campaign, what he was saying then was Obama and Hillary created the Islamic State. 
oh, yeah, how can you say that? Because he backed the jihadists in Libya and in Syria. Yeah. And then he would go, yeah, and also he pulled the troops out of Iraq. And then later on, he dropped the first two and stuck with the last part. Mm-hmm. When, you know, in fact, if Obama had just really gotten out of Iraq, the whole situation and, and stayed out of Syria, the Islamic State would have never existed. In fact, Alawi really won the right in 2010 to form the new government. And Obama sided with the Iranians against him to keep Maliki in there. And that was the last chance because Alawi was a Shia, but he was also uh, you remember him. He was Bush's first sock puppet dictator there um, back in the early days of Iraq War Two. But he was a Shia, but also a former Baathist. And he had connections. And he, if anyone could have possibly come to an understanding with the now severely beaten uh, Sunni Arab minority that could have kept the Islamic State out of there, it would have been him. But Obama kept intervening. So not only did he back the jihadists in Libya and Syria, he also intervened to keep Maliki in the prime ministership in Shia Iraq after Maliki lost in the election under the constitution that the Americans had created there in 2010. Yeah. So basically we have yet another president who has the attitude of not on my watch when it comes to, when it comes to acknowledging reality and cutting your losses. And And in that funny, right. That if he pulled the troops out of Afghanistan, then anything bad that happens in Afghanistan after that is all his fault for pulling the troops out. Right. If he stays, and people die every day. Well, that's just despite our best efforts, you know. And yeah. That's perfectly acceptable. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's it, Yeah, it's one wonderful faulty logic, right? That you know, if we pull out of country X and then something bad happens after that in country X, therefore, right, uh, it, it must have been caused by us pulling out. It's just like the old uh, George Carlin bit, right? What was wrong with Vietnam? We pulled out. Yeah, that's not a very manly thing to do, is it? No. There were still a few of them left alive. Oh, yeah. That's what he says at the end. He says, there were a few women and children left alive in Vietnam, and we haven't felt good about ourselves since. Which was right. And, you know, I was born, like, right after Vietnam. So I grew up kind of in the shadow of all of that. And that was exactly right. The way he phrased that was perfect. That, oh, poor America's feelings, you know? It's just like the there's a show right now about the, the battle in Sodder City where Thomas Young and um, and Casey Sheehan were both fatally wounded. That's going on on Nat Geo right now. And, you know, it ain't their fault. I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm picking on the movie makers. First of all, the script is written by Martha Raditz, or it's based on a book by Martha Raditz, of all people. So how much, you know, depth and substance are you going to get out of that? But anyway, you know, the story is, in essence, like if you zoom all the way out, the story is, isn't Iraq War II a really sad thing that happened to America? But that's not the story of Iraq War II. The story of Iraq War II is what a sad story it is of what America did to the Iraqi people who are just as human as you. These guys, yeah, we should feel bad for them getting shot up for nothing. They're fighting against Muqtada al-Sadr. Don't they know the whole war was for Muqtada al-Sadr? Who's running this thing? Yes, we should absolutely pity those really kids, those very young men getting shot up in that. But is that the story of Iraq War II? The saddest thing that ever happened in Sadr City is what happened to the Americans there? Like, it just seems so intellectually dishonest. Like, we're not even man enough to say as a society, that, like, yeah, you know what? 
killing a million people, not just not just killing a million people, raising a society to the ground. Right. There used to be eight thousand Jews in Baghdad. Now there are eight Jews in Baghdad. Right. The Yazidis, the Turkmen, the Syrian Christians and all the different ethnic and religious factions have all been scattered to the wind, destroyed. We're talking about cultures that have existed in the same place for 2000 years or more. And America came and completely we destroyed their culture. We destroyed their everything. And oh, well, whatever. Yeah, man, it was really sad when. Some white Christian kids who are way, way far away trespassing on somebody else's property got shot over there just because that's who we are. And that's what we're supposed to identify with. And and the, and the lesson of the story is not in any way. And this could this is available. This is easy enough to say, wait, aren't we isn't Muqtad al-Sadr part of the United Iraqi Alliance that we're putting in power right now? Why are we fighting against him? <laughs> right. That's all I had to say. Right. Put one line in there about how these boys are dying and killing for nothing. They're fighting all the bad guys hiding on the balconies and on the rooftops shooting down at them. But who are these men, these masked Arab men killing our heroes? That's his apartment that he lives in. He's on his own roof. He's being attacked by a foreign army. And anyway, you know, I'm not trying to be insensitive to the soldiers because, again, these are the people from my neighborhood just like yours. I'm I'm criticizing the the policy itself, but I'm I'm criticizing that reflection in the culture, right? Like I was saying before, there's nobody anti-war. There's no character that's anti-war in any sitcom, in any drama, in any of these shows. But then we have endless shows, even now, even, you know, 15, 16, 17 years into the terror war, that just do nothing but valorize the heroic Delta Force going out on a brave mission. And whatever and they have endless shows like this. That's like North Korea or something with the propaganda here. And even long after it should have worn off. Sorry, I'm done now. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they keep using those those propaganda strategies because they keep working, you know. And it it seems like there's there's long been, and it probably is the case with every government of every country. And I'm just the most familiar with it in America because I'm an American and I've studied a lot of American history. But it seems like there's a really pronounced tendency in America going way back to, you know, not, not just to always focus only on the damage to your side in war, because that's, that's, that's pretty common, you know, across the board. But there's this real pronounced thing where American leaders and then American media and popular culture largely kind of echoes this, and then it gets inculcated into the average people, where they treat the coming of a war as if it's something that just kind of happened. Like it's a natural disaster, like it's an earthquake that just sort of like, you know, through nobody's fault, mm -hmm. it just sort of fell on your society, and man, we tried to deal with it the best we could, you know. They get really quickly, they get into like passive voice uh, usages, you know, and I, and I think all the way back to, to Lincoln's second inaugural when he's talked about the Civil War and Lincoln says, and the war came, you know, as, that's as in if, the movie, too. That's what McChrystal says to his wife at dinner. Yeah, well, yeah, you exactly. Know, if we hadn't gone to war, if there hadn't been a war, if if September 11 hadn't happened, but it did happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's always like this sort of passive voice. Nobody's really responsible. It's not that specific leaders made specific choices and that, you know, the, the majority of the people, um, fell for it and went along with it. I mean, there's, there's this real 
effort to, to uh, abdicate all responsibility. You know, it's sort of a combination of like, oh, it's a natural disaster that just sort of fell on us. Plus, maybe at most, like, and our good intentions just led us astray a little bit, you know, kind of like the Vietnam narrative, right? Like, mm-hmm. we just, you know, we wanted to build a TVA on the Mekong Delta and, and just, you know, they weren't receptive to it, unfortunately. Right. Hey, uh, we talked about the great comedian uh, Dave Smith. Did you see his uh, clip when he was on um, the uh, uh, CNN show with um, S.E. Cup where he's talking about blowback? Oh, I think I, I think I heard the uh, the audio of it. Yeah, it was really good. I mean, he scored some great points there. But um, so I'm just mentioning that. But the point is, what she was saying was he makes this great case. No, 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 this is all blowback. Don't you see? And then her answer to that, she says to him, "Okay, I grant you all of that." Yeah. Right, like every his entire argument, she's like, "Okay, yeah, no, everybody knows that's true. Like, what could I possibly do?" put up resistance against, you know, you just completely blew my logic away. But then she just says, yeah, but now what? (laughs) Right. Like, let's say that I was wrong about every single thing. And let's say that every single thing that I supported all this time is what created this horrible mess that we're in. But now look at all these terrorists everywhere. What are we supposed to do? Not kill them? We got to. (laughs) And and it's it's really I can see it from their point of view, how hard it is, even if they're willing to concede that much. How hard it is for them to concede that, yes, you are going to have to leave the Middle East with 40,000 terrorists on the loose. Because the more you stay, the more likely it is we're going to have 50,000 or 60,000. You can not tie up these loose ends. And every time I give you permission to, you go and overthrow another secular dictator and turn the countryside over to jihad again. So just know that's it. We have to call it off. And that's such a dissatisfactory answer to people that – It's not that we lost. It's that winning creates more enemies. Winning is losing. Fighting the war is killing ourselves. That's the name of this whole game. You know, you shouldn't have to be a master at calculus and trigonometry to be able to figure this stuff out. This is simple arithmetic. You know, we have to just call it off. And and I don't know. I actually I like to believe that people understand that that's true, but they need it said out loud, really loud once with conviction nearby them for them to really like grok that okay i can do this i can believe that i don't have to believe this stuff anymore but somebody's got to set the precedent for them because as far as they know only michael moore thinks that i mean if that guy isn't the creation of lockheed and the defense department (laughs) i don't know how else to explain him but he is absolutely you know the number one discrediting force since jane fonda against (laughs) <laughs> All anti-war belief and action in this country. And I guess they would just find another scapegoat if it wasn't him. But this, you know, giant glutton who has glutton written all over his face and yet he's a communist and yet he's a millionaire <laughs> and yet he wants to raise your taxes to 100 percent and he hates our troops. Thanks a lot, dude. Just somebody please push that guy off of something. Uh, because, in fact, I mean, really what people need is for anyone except Michael Moore to say that, hey, we could stop this and it would be OK. That, that In fact, it's the only solution to the problem that we're in now. Well, um, any any last uh, thoughts, observations, anything we didn't mention um, regarding War Machine that that you thought was uh, important or interesting or I'm glad like they that? made it. I yeah. mean, I know a lot of people are not going to read my book, but if you watch that movie, you'll get a pretty good taste of at least one chapter of my book uh, <laughs> about Obama's surge there. And it, it, it certainly does make the point that this war won't be won. 
The only way to quote when it would be genocide, and that's not any kind of victory at all. There is no way to pacify the Pashtuns, full stop. So we can have this conversation another 10 or 16 years, and it'll be the same thing. And people ought to be able to tell that from this. Yeah. And, uh, and you know what? I say, too, read The Operators by Michael Hastings. It's a great book. I mean, you'll just knock it right out in a couple of two or three hours or something, people, and, and you'll really enjoy it. And, and, you know, it's the legacy of a really great journalist. Uh, it's a real shame what happened to him exactly uh, however it happened. We're all at a loss for him being dead. He was in the middle of being great on everything that was going on at the time, at the time that he died, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, definitely do that. And uh, and just to be clear again, I don't have anything to do with this movie. We're both just talking about sure, it together. Sure. And it just it just so happened that the movie came out right around the same time my book was coming out a couple of, you know, like a month later or something. So and a lot of the my book features a lot of uh, Hastings reporting and, of course, you know, sourcing from my interviews of him uh, at the time and everything, too. So there's a lot of overlap there. But I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to ride coattails off of that thing or, or claim misrepresent that I you know, deserve any credit for that thing. I just like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. My own take on the movie was, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't, you know, quite as radical or quite as, you know, uh, maybe holistic as I would have preferred if I was, you know, the, the God of making movies about America's wars or something. But I tend to grade these things on a curve. In other words, yeah. for a relatively big budget, relatively mainstream American movie with some big name actors in it and whatever, it's about as critical of this whole thing as you're going to get realistically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially with, uh, I mean, Brad Pitt, he's the, most famous leading man type actor in Hollywood these days, isn't he? Or was that 10 years ago? Yeah. I mean, he's still a, still a huge name obviously though. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think so. And it's unfortunate it was just on Netflix and it didn't get a theater release. I don't know if the, the business would have supported it. Um, but, uh, you know, I guess one thing I would point out too, and I don't know exactly, I guess this doesn't really make it into the movie, but, a lot of soldiers, and I don't know what percent, I, I certainly ain't speaking for them, but I know there are a lot of soldiers who would agree with that message uh, in that movie. And I know because they tell me they like my book. And I got, I got, you know, when I was uh, with Tom Woods and Bob Murphy on that cruise, there was a guy there who was a veteran of the the war and the, the battles in the Korangal Valley. And I was actually, I would have been relieved if he had told me that I had missed something. That's not as bad as I think or something. And he just liked it, <laughs> you know, which is really disappointing to me. I mean, honestly, <laughs> I would rather be wrong. I don't care, you know, um, go ahead and tell me what I'm wrong about. And he's like, no, that's about right. And then there was also a Green Beret and a Marine. Wait, I think the third guy was a Marine. No, no, no. No, they were all Army. One of them was a Green Beret, one of them was a specialist, and one of them I can't remember. Maybe he was just regular infantry, I don't know what rank, but um, maybe another uh, uh, specialist. But they were all like, oh, yeah, no, your book's great, man. <laughs> yeah, all the, all the stuff that you say, yeah, I totally agree with that. Which, you know, and I'm not saying that to like, you know, obviously we're at the end of the interview anyway. It's not like I'm like hiding behind that as a disclaimer or whatever. But I like to point that out to people that for anyone who's still under the misimpression you know, that it's somehow sacrilege, somehow spitting on a soldier like after Vietnam to criticize the missions that the think tankers and arms dealers and 
politicians send them on, uh, you know, that that's really just not true. And that, in fact, you got guys who are legit combat veterans who tell me that they're happy that I'm out here saying this stuff where people can hear it. So take that for what it's worth. And I'm not saying all of them. But then again, go back and look at when Ron Paul ran for president. And he got more donations, and we don't know exactly how they voted. I don't know if anybody ever did the poll. But he certainly got more donations from enlisted and officers in all the branches of the military than all the rest of his competition combined. And that includes in both parties, more than Obama and Hillary and McCain or Romney and all the rest. And, and that goes for 08 and in 12. Because, again, because he wasn't Michael Moore. He was a Republican from texas saying oh yeah no we don't have to believe in this stuff and they were like oh thank god thank you for not being michael moore and telling me that i don't have to believe in this anymore yeah and i've got you know a lot of uh veterans in in my podcast audience um including some who are you know financial supporters of the show and whenever i cover you know war war related stuff whether it's a uh, current war or whether it's a war a long time ago and uh, and i point out all these you know dark sides of it. And, 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 you know, I, I do my best to try and portray like just how ugly it is, whether it's the civil war or something more recent. And, you know, I hear from them and they're, they're appreciative of anyone who's trying to call BS on all of like the media, you know, hero worshiping idea that if you question any of the wars or anything like that, that means like you're, you know, spitting on the troops or what have you. And in fact, it was uh, a listener to my show um, emailed me who was uh, was in Afghanistan who actually recommended this movie to me. And he said that based on his experience, you know, the movie was pretty accurate overall to what was going on there. Um, right. And then between that and you mentioning it, that was what made me actually uh, uh, go watch it. But, you know, they're out there. We What we don't have is someone as high profile as like – you know, like a modern day Smedley Butler, some some like highly decorated, you know, general that nobody could possibly question his courage or his patriotism. Right. To come we got out a couple colonels. Radical. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, that's we true. got a couple colonels. And I think we do have a couple generals, but they're just not of enough stature. They don't speak loudly enough or whatever it is. You know, they don't take that position. I think they could. You know, I that's really a project. Somebody volunteer to help with that project of finding really the very, very best retired generals and making a group of them and getting them to come out against this stuff in the very best way. You know, a you know? lot of them, a lot of them don't believe in this stuff. A lot of them. are. When they got grandkids, you know yeah. what I mean? There comes a point in your life where you're like, hey, wait a minute. Do I still believe the stuff I thought yesterday? I'm not sure. Let me think about this for a second. You know, come on. This is crazy. And not all of them have a big cushy job at a defense firm that's at risk. You know, a lot of them, they're already getting their pension. They're already retired. They're all right. They could hell. They they spent a career asking young men to step out there and get killed. You know, they could do something brave, like speak out. That's That'd be what nice. I think. I'll shame them a little bit. Too, <laughs> if we're, you know, come on, man. Sure. You're a general. You ain't tough enough to take a little shame and take a little action. Yeah, and who knows if uh, more really high-level people started coming out radically criticizing this stuff. You know, not just making the little the little mild like, oh, this one operation over here was mismanaged, or this one war over here was a little misguided, but like coming out, you know, fundamentally critiquing the whole the whole operation, the whole system. 
maybe if if a few of them took those were the first to do that maybe it would be sort of like people coming out about Harvey Weinstein or whatever where it's right. like then the next thing you know like a hundred generals show up the next day going yeah actually we're <laughs> we kind of have the same take you know yeah man that's the most important project in America right now is getting that going and I'll tell you you know there's a guy who's um uh Colonel McGregor who and I'm not just saying this cuz he endorsed my book but he did but anyway I saw him on the Tucker show and he said to Tucker about the war in Afghanistan, he says, you have to understand, it's a broken force. The infantry out there, they don't believe in the mission. That's it. You can't have a war like that. You can't put infantry out there when the army is just broken, when they're completely sick and tired of it, when everybody knows that it's a you know thingamajig. And he wasn't being hyperbolic like I just said even. He just only said half of that. But he just said they don't believe in the mission. It cannot work. We have to stop this. Only coming from him, it sounded really serious. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He wasn't – he didn't say it loudly, but it sounded like, wow, maybe someone should pay attention to this guy. You know, like I don't know exactly how broken an army can be before it's literally broken, before you have guys ending up just getting surrounded out in the middle of nowhere because the, the machine itself just does not work anymore, you know, or what. But – um yeah, you know, I would I would take that pretty seriously. I know that he's not alone in that and it's and you know what, as long as I'm talking and who knows who's listening to this, I think that Vets for Peace should rename their massive organization Veterans Against the War and they should get rid of the dove and they should go clean for Gene and they should all cut their Vietnam length hippie hair and <laughs> and they should act more pretend just act more like conservatives. Act more like um, it's just serious business because any taint, and I hate to say this because it's not their fault necessarily or whatever, but it's just the reality in 2017 is that tie dye and hippies and Janis Joplin and, you know, big dirtweed joints and, and, uh, Woodstock and Jane Fonda and all these things, they all just smack of ignorance and, and weakness and femininity and distraction. And I ain't saying it's fair. I'm not saying that's my point of view. I'm just saying that's the marketing of any taint of Vietnam era hippiness, hippie dumb. It can't be about that. You can't let people taint with that. You know, the in 2002 or three, the Answer Coalition anti-war group literally invited Jane Fonda to come and speak at one of their big rallies when she's the absolute hate figure on the right. It's her fault. We lost the Vietnam War. Everybody knows that. What well, If they wanted to help, they would have sent her to a pro-war rally and say, <laughs> I hate America. And Bush Cheney's plan to bankrupt and destroy the United States forever is the number one way to get it done. Hoorah. Right? <laughs> if you want to help. <laughs> You know, so that's the whole thing. I'm not saying it's fair, but get rid of the dove. Get rid of peace. Peace sounds weak and ignorant. Peace sounds like, well, the men know what to do. So you just sit there and sing your little song and we'll just ignore you and we'll go do what's necessary to secure America, regardless of what you think. Right. It's like self-dismissing. It's like saying I'm a college kid. Right. Right before you uh, say your big piece. It doesn't help, you know, (laughs) And I, and look, I don't I don't pretend I'm a right winger, and I couldn't, right? I'm a life, I've never been a left winger or a right winger, but I, you know, I'm obviously not one. But I'm also not a tie dye hippie either, so I can't be that quickly dismissed. I hope, you know, on on that kind of a level, because and I know how that's how people think. 
I know that's how they think because that's how they try to react to me sometimes until they realize that it's not going to work, you know, but. Yeah, yeah. It's basically it's identity politics, but kind of more in the left versus right than the, you know, race and and gender right. and all that, you know, where it's like, yeah. well, I'm I'm part of Team NASCAR. I'm I'm not part of Team uh, yeah. NPR, you know. And I'm sorry for my regular listeners who hear all my interviews and stuff because I'm repeating myself. But, you know, South Park did this the best back in the days of Iraq War II, where the entire battle in the town of South Park over Iraq War II had nothing to do with Iraq or Saddam Hussein at all. The question was whether your country or rock and roll. That's right. I remember and if your that country, one. you love Bush, you love the war, you believe whatever he says, you're afraid Saddam is going to give nuclear bombs to Osama bin Laden or whatever you've been <laughs> instructed to believe, you idiots. And then if you're rock and roll, then you listen to NPR and you're a smug liberal idiot who actually knows nothing and isn't man enough to protect America if there really was a threat anyway and all of this kind of thing. And then that's it. Do you like Bono or do you like George Strait? And this is the <laughs> argument that decides uh, whether we have a genocidal war or not. You know, is this kind of uh, whose side you on ism? That's why I always love Ron Paul so much. You know, he never appealed to me extra for being a conservative. He just appealed to me as being more appealing for being a conservative, right? For being for for being such a square and yet being so radical for peace and just absolutely broken, no dissent over it whatsoever. You know, Giuliani screams at him, back down, old man. And he goes, no, I won't, because here's what the truth is. That's what we need is more Ron Paul's. And I don't set a good example of practicing what I preach, but I'm still right. <laughs> well, um Thanks uh, for for talking to me, Scott. I, I really uh, appreciate it, and I know my listeners will too. And um, want to throw in one last plug for your book. Uh, of course, I recommend it, but want to throw in one more plug for the book. Well, you know Daniel Ellsberg and Ron Paul and Tom Woods and uh, Peter Van Buren and Gareth Porter and Patrick Coburn and Anand Gopal and Colonel Douglas McGregor and, and Wilkerson and Daniel Davis and Matthew Ho and all these great guys. They read it and they liked it. Karen Katowski and Lori Calhoun, some girls too, gals, women. Um, if you go to foolsaron.us, you can read the blurbs. So other people you admire took my book seriously. How do you like That's that? Right. Is that good marketing? Yeah, US for that. There you go. And and those are all, you know, I think just about everybody you listed there is all people you've probably interviewed at least two dozen times. Yeah, well, I wish. Not all of them, but <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I was calling in a little bit of a favor, but then I'm pretty sure they weren't lying. You know, Stephen Walt took a, a little longer to get back to me. I guess I wasn't brave enough to send it to him for a while, and then finally I sent it to him, and then he didn't get back to me for a long time, and I thought, oh, you know what? I bet Stephen Walt decided, yeah, this is not quite up to snuff. He's a Harvard international relations professor and all of this stuff after all, you know? And so, okay. And then about two days before it went to print, he sent me an email. Great job, Scott. Check it out. Here's my blurb and gave me a great blurb for the book. So I'm really proud of that because I worked really hard on this under the sure. labor theory of value. You all <laughs> owe me a million dollars. <laughs> yep, there you go. I don't believe in the labor theory of value, but I hope that subjectively you all will value the book enough to pay 20 bucks for it. How about that? Yes, definitely. Definitely. Well, thanks again for coming on and for uh, helping me to review War Machine. Well, thank you. Yeah, sorry. We talked about I talked about a lot of things besides that, but thanks again for having me, man. Sure, you're welcome anytime. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History podcast. Check out the website, profcj.org, or you can just put in dangerousherypodcast.com. 
to get the show notes for this and every other Dangerous History Podcast episode. While you're there, you can email subscribe to the site over in the right-hand side, and if you put in your email address there and subscribe, you won't get any spam or anything like that from me, no junk email. You'll simply get an email notification every time something new is posted at my website. You can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter as well, and you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, however you prefer to consume your podcasts. If you enjoy and appreciate this show, there are many different ways you can help me keep this show going, growing, and constantly improving. One easy way is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast to those you think might appreciate it who don't already know about it. And you can also help the show out by leaving ratings or reviews in venues such as iTunes, which helps the podcast get ranked more highly. If you would like to help out the show financially, there are many ways to do so. And you'll find them at profcj.org slash donate. And one of the best, most helpful is to sign up to support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash profcj. And if you pledge a contribution of at least $5 per month or more, you'll have access to bonus episodes that I publish in Patreon available nowhere else, as well as the ability to join the Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors private Facebook group. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal, and you can donate via Bitcoin as well. And of course, if you buy things from any of my Amazon affiliate links or my A-Books affiliate links, go through those links, then do your shopping as normal, and the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission at no additional cost to you. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.